those. Y'all know Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John, that John right there, right? I'm just saying, just right after Malachi, that starts, right? The beginning of the New Testament, amen. The book of John, chapter 20, verse 19, when you got it, say so. Amen, hallelujah, we're there. It says, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. God, we love you. And we thank you so very much for your presence that is here. We thank you so very much for your love, Lord God, that you are pouring out into our hearts afresh. God, we thank you for the reminders that it is all about you. And God, today we ask you to give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church. We pray today, Lord God, that we would be mindful of what you will for us, not what we will for ourselves, God. I pray that our hearts would be open to your searching spirit and God, that as you convict us, that we would respond in repentance and in faith, my God, unto you. Father God, that when you challenge us, Lord God, that we would say that we may not be able in our own strength, but by your grace, we are able, God. Father, that above all things, that we would, that we would be committed to obedience to your word. God, we honor you today. Pray that you be glorified in these next few moments. In Jesus' good name, someone said, Amen. you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Now, if you don't have an outline, please raise your hand and the ushers will get you an outline. If you don't have an outline, keep it up so that way they can see you and they'll make sure they get to you quickly. That way you can follow along and you can take notes because I know you're all amazing note takers. Hallelujah. You have to be amazing note takers to take notes when I preach because I speak real fast. Hallelujah. Amen. Glory to God. We're going to start handing out recorders instead of paper so that way you can just go like that and just catch me, right? It'll be easier, huh? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I just lied on the altar. We are not handing out recorders, but we will continue to. <laughs> and I'll make sure I repeat stuff for you, all right? I, 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 that will that, hopefully help you out. So we're ready. So the book of John, we're dealing with this. Um, if you follow along with me in the outline, thus far we have learned in dealing with this series, we're still in, 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 in this series, What Does Love Have to Do With It? And so in this series, we have began to, um, to examine some things. And we've learned two things, and that's the weakest areas for us as a church, our loving relationships, which is what we addressed last week. And then the second area where we were the weakest in was needs-oriented evangelism, which we will address this week. And so those are the two areas. Remember, we dealt with the barrel, and the barrel was symbolized all of these different areas of the church. And the smallest plank in the barrel is where the water or the liquid was going to fall out. And so what we understood that for us as a church, we needed to desire to have all of our planks, so to speak, at the same level or at least growing. And so as a church, we're going to continue to grow. One thing that I didn't mention to you is this, is that as churches grow, right, as they continue to move, different areas will become weaker because as they grow, you know, small groups may need to be adjusted or, you know, structures may need to be adjusted. Different things may need to be adjusted in order to sustain what it is that God is trying to do because, you know, God is the one who blesses. He's the one that adds, but at the 
same time, he also expects us to be faithful stewards of all that he gives us. And so that means that we need to look at our lives and not just, see, because our problem is that we're real spiritual people. And I did say that, that our problem is that. Hello. Amen. See, our problem is that we're real spiritual and not practical. Right? So we want to pray and we want to ask God to do all of this stuff, but we don't want to look at, okay, God, why, why are you not doing these things? And God is saying to you sometimes, I'm trying to do stuff, but you're in the way. I'm trying to do things, but you are not cooperating with me. And so we looked at our Bible and we saw that from the Old Testament to the New, God wanted to dwell and he wanted to habitate among the children of Israel, but something had to be erected first. And what was that? A tabernacle had to be erected, right? And so the same thing that we learned last week when we were talking about loving relationships, that what God is trying to do is he is building his dwelling place. And so no longer are we trying to build buildings for God to dwell in because you do realize that this is an empty building when you're not here. Amen? And what I mean by that is the church is not this building. You and I are the church. And when we come together, that is when the church has arrived. Amen? And so what happens for us is that we need to look at some practical things and we need to consider um, know where it is that we are lacking and so we looked at those areas and so this particular one the need-oriented evangelism what we'll deal with this week we should understand and I hope that I drive this point home clearly that I'm doing it every week because I want this to be clear that 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 growth in these areas is not possible if the love of God is not growing in our hearts which increases our love for God and if you have an outline you can follow along with what I'm saying here you'll notice that of and for are italicized because I want to make a point and is that if our love if the love of God is not increasing in our hearts then our love for God will not increase therefore we're not going to grow the love of God must compel us to grow in all areas of our faith so for us as individuals the love of God is what should be compelling us to grow in every area of our faith and now collectively as a church these two areas specifically and if the love of God is not the motivation what begins to happen is the the reason for our growth will diminish over time. So if God's love is not compelling me, if God's love, if it, if it is not, now listen to me, if it is not God's love for me, that is bringing me to prayer when I get up to pray or when I stay up late to pray or when I take my lunch break to pray, if it is not God's love that is compelling me to do that, that will become stale soon. If it is not God's love that is compelling me to be in his word, if it is just simply that I'm going to be, you know, ritualistic or I'm going to make sure that I do these disciplines, if discipline is the primary reason why you're doing it, then you are missing the real motivation. You see, because when you look at the Pharisees, the Pharisees were very disciplined. But God says that their lips are near me, but their hearts are far from me. They were not understanding what? The love of God that God was trying to show them. They weren't realizing this picture of his love that he was showing them throughout the whole old covenant. And that's the reason why they missed Jesus. Because they weren't consumed with the love of God, they were consumed with the rules of God. Listen, we as a people must be motivated not just to grow because we're supposed to grow, but be motivated to grow because we are growing in our understanding of God's love toward us. Amen? 
Now, I want to point something out that I think is very important. You can write these scriptures down. You should write them right there next to this statement, that last one there in the paragraph. And it is that it is of great importance that we notice while there are only three synoptic gospels, all four end with the sending of the disciples, meaning to us that making disciples is to be a part of our everyday life. Now, let me, let me give you the scriptures that I said. Matthew chapter 28, you can write it down. You guys know this, 28 verses 18, 18 through 20. That's the most popular one that you hear, go ye therefore, you know, as you go is what that scripture is really talking about. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them and, and, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them all things that I've taught you. And so those are very important scriptures for us. The book of Mark, it also in chapter 16, um, verses 14 through 20, it speaks of the same commission, not the exact same words. Um, the book of Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 49, it ends there with God. It's toward the end of Jesus' time with his disciples, and he's communicating to them this great commission that we know of. And then you can also look at the book of Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts begins with the, with, with the last um, scene of Jesus being with his disciples, and God is commissioning his church. God is commissioning them. The reason why Matthew becomes so important for us is because he instructs his disciples specifically to teach all things that I have taught you. Now, this becomes very important for us because when we look at evangelism, we can say, well, Jesus in John chapter 20 that we looked at, he was with his disciples and he was communicating to his inner core there. He was letting them know, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And we could argue the point and say, well, that sending is not for us. That sending was for them. The problem with that is that when you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus not only taught his disciples about reaching the lost, but he exemplified what it meant to go after the lost. And so if I am if, if to be a product of what Jesus commanded his disciples to do, then that means that I'm a person who is going to listen to the teachings of Jesus, and I'm also going to look at the example of Jesus, and I'm going to be a disciple maker. That is what we are supposed to be. Here's the thing. You and I, hear me when I say this, you and I cannot be disciples if we are not making disciples. You know why? Because disciples make disciples. If I am a disciple of Jesus and I'm following Jesus, Jesus made disciples, that means that I will. So making disciples is twofold, right? Twofold. Number one, it's reaching people. You can't make disciples if you're not reaching people with the gospel, amen? And the second part of it is helping people grow in the gospel as they come to Jesus. That's how it is. That's what making disciples means. And so we need to be a part of what God is calling us to do. Let me say this again, and I'll drive this point home. I want to continue to make sure you understand. I don't want anyone. I, I, I really hate. I hate it. because let me, let me explain to you why I hate this so much. I really hate legalism. And the reason why I hate legalism is because I'm a legalist. Are you hearing me? Because I'm a rules guy. I'm like, okay, this is what I have to do. That's what I have to do. And I have a list, and I got to do this. And I gotta, when I pray, listen, I feel condemned. Like I have a prayer list. I never had a prayer list until like a couple of months ago. And, and now I feel condemned if I go pray and I don't look at my list. Why? Because I'm a legalist by nature. That is just me. And I hate legalism because then what happens is because I'm a legalist, I begin to pat myself on the back because I completed my list. 
Are y'all hearing me? Listen, and so what happens is God does not want us to just be legalists. He doesn't want us to just get a plan of how we're going to reach other people. He wants us to be moved on the inside to reach other people. He wants us to be stirred in our inner man to reach out to those who don't know him. He doesn't just want us to be like, okay, I have to reach people because Bishop said that our church needs to grow in needs-oriented evangelism, and so now i got to figure out how to do that. I'm going to show you how to do that practically because I want to give you some practical steps, but here is the point. The point is, I don't want you to just have the practical steps without the motivation. The motivation is not to fill the empty seats. The motivation is not to get to two services or three services. That's not the motivation. The motivation is the love of God that has been poured out into our hearts. And if the love of God is not compelling you, my brother, my sister, I call you to repentance before God and say, Lord, forgive me for minimizing and not exalting your love. Forgive me for not meditating on and becoming overwhelmed by the power of the gospel because the motivation... For everything that we do, this is the reason why the series is called What Does Love Have to Do With It? Because everything should come out of the love of God that is breaking and molding and shaping us in our inner man. And what happens is externally we begin to look like something else. You don't just try to figure out how to, how to do church. and People have been trying to figure out how to do church forever. And look at the condition of the church. The realistic thing, this is an amazing t- statistic that blew my mind. I was at a conference, and, and you know, the pastor who was speaking, he asked a question. He said, well, how many people do you think you know, are Christian in the United States? And some of you have heard this statistic before, but for those of you that haven't, this should be news to you. But what, what, what he said was, according to some statistics, you, know, you might have like you know, 50%, 60%, 70%. That's what most people will say. But he said, but when you really dig down into the real questions of what a Christian really is, he said, you really will understand in the United States of America, there's really only about 7 to 9% of the people are Christians. But let me tell you something, we know how to do church. Oh, we know how to do church. We know how to make the music right. We know how to make the program tight. We know how to make children's ministry where, where everyone wants to be. We know how to paint the walls, and we know how to do all the fun interactions. We know how to do We know how to do it all. But why is it that we're losing this battle for souls? Because it's not about the external stuff. It's about what's going on in, inside the hearts of people. The first thing I ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, disciples are called out of darkness to imitate a sent and sending Savior. Disciples are called out of darkness to imitate a sent and sending Savior. And so look with me at our Bible so we can look at these scriptures together. Jesus is there, and it says, Then the same day at evening, which is Sunday, right? Being the first day of the week, that's Sunday. At evening, they're together when the doors were shut. So look at all the supernatural stuff that's happening here. They're saying the doors were locked where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. So the reason why the doors were locked is because the disciples were not there like in a prayer meeting. They were there scared for their lives. Because just a couple of days ago, you know what they saw? They saw their teacher. They saw their leader. They saw the one that they had all their hope and they put all their eggs in that basket. They saw him go through a trial. And after that trial, you know, they all fled from him. And then looking from afar or wherever, they saw their guy, their Messiah. They saw him hang on a tree and die. 
And so all of their lives were threatened, and they were fearful that they were going to die. And so the doors are locked, and Jesus shows up. He just busts through the doors. You know, he comes into the room out of nowhere, and he says to them, peace be with you. He, he speaks peace to them. And then he shows them, the Bible says, and you, you, if you look at your Bible, you'll see this. He shows them the scars in his hands and his side. His, he shows them these scars. And what he is doing is he is encouraging them. He's saying, you saw me being crucified. You saw me die. But look, I've overcome that. You saw me when I went through all those things. But I'm here. And then the Bible says that their attitude shifted from being one of fear to being one that is rejoicing. That's what the Bible says. So they go from being fearful of death to now rejoicing because their Savior, the one they put all their hope in, has now shown up to encourage them. And then he says to them a second time, peace be with you. But then he says, as, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. The Father, when you think about this in its context, what Jesus is saying to them, he's saying, look, you guys have been with me for three years. You guys have seen my heart. And we're going to look at scriptures throughout the book of John. So don't put your Bible away. Don't tuck it away somewhere. Make sure you have it open. But Jesus is saying, you guys have walked with me for three years. And you have seen my life. And you know that I have been sent on mission by the Father. I have been sent to seek and to save the lost. He's saying, the same way that my Father sent me. Now listen, he didn't just send me to go and preach and to heal and to minister. He sent me to die. Hello. Because we all want the preaching and the ministering and the praying. We, we, we all want the good stuff. We don't want the hardship. Because someone lied to us along the way and said, when you come to Jesus, everything's going to be great. Wow. Now, 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 I want, I want to balance the statement. Jesus can heal marriages like that. Amen. Jesus can heal sickness like that. Amen. Jesus can restore finances. I mean, amazing. He is Jehovah Jireh. He, he can do all those things, okay? So if you have issues with that, I encourage you. Come to Jesus and submit those things to him. But can I tell you something else? Jesus can also help you endure hardship in your marriage. Hello. You see, one, one, one thing that I know is that sometimes situations, I, I'm going to say it, sometimes situations get worse when you come to Jesus. And see, I don't want to lie to you. I don't want you to be like, listen, you come to Jesus, everything's going to be amazing. Because it may not be in the natural. But what I can promise you is this, is if you come to Jesus, no matter what is going on in the natural in your life, you will have a joy that the Bible says is unspeakable. Why does it say that? Because you cannot fathom, you cannot understand the joy that is going on inside of you. My life is looking like hell, turmoil all around me. Things are messed up and yet I have something going on in me. And so that's what I can promise you, is that if you come to Jesus, he will get you in a place that you have never been. You will know a peace that you have never known. You will know a joy. And then what I love is this is he will teach you the principle of stewardship because Paul says that we have been entrusted with the gospel and we're supposed to be stewards. And so what Paul is saying for him to be a steward was to be a preacher of the gospel. But can I tell you something? The way that every one of us is a steward of the gospel is how is it that the gospel affects every area of my life? See, I'm a good steward when I allow the gospel to affect my finances. I'm a good steward when I allow the gospel to affect my marriage. I'm a good steward when I allow the gospel to affect my parenting. I am a bad steward when I come to Jesus and say, you fix it all, but I'm not changing a thing. 
You see, we are called to be stewards of this amazing gospel. And and when we are stewards, see, when we come to Jesus and he entrusts us with this, he says, let me live my life through you. And as we become overwhelmed by this gospel, then you're going to see the fruit of the gospel in your life. That doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean easy. But it means that I'll be with you. Not me, Jesus. Hello. (laughs) I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with my wife. Amen. I'll be with you on Sundays and connecting and when we get together. But Jesus, he's always with you. He doesn't miss a text. Hello. He doesn't miss a call. He doesn't put you to voicemail. Amen, amen. I know some of y'all put me to voicemail. You miss church. Be like, Bishop calling me. I'm not going to pick up. Amen. Uh Uh-huh. I'm just joking. (laughs) I'm not joking, but anyway, it's funny, though. Um, You you know know how it is. You're looking at your phone. Be like, oh, man. You know, I'll be, I'll be on my way to a meeting, right, and Milton is calling. I'm like, man, I know this conversation is going to take more than three minutes, so I'm going to have to let him go to voicemail right now, and I'm going to call him back, right, because we get encouraged. We say, Milton and I start talking, and we're talking for like 30 minutes, and we don't even talk. We don't know what we're talking. We're just talking, just like going, you know, so anyway, what I'm saying is, see, I use it as a good example. Some of y'all be like, oh, I can't talk to that person. You ain't going to no meeting. You're not going anywhere. You just don't want to pick up the phone. I'm just saying. All right, so. But Jesus doesn't do that. Amen? He doesn't look and say, oh, it's Sarah again. Oh, it's Dawn again. Here she comes with her list. He doesn't say that. Right? He doesn't say that. Like, oh, here, here, comes, here comes Chad again. He's just, oh, my goodness. Right? He, doesn't, he does not do that. He is there at all times. When you wake up in the middle of the night and you don't know why, can I tell you something? You didn't wake up. He woke you up. Most of the time, I'm not saying every time, you know, don't over-spiritualize because sometimes, you know, you ate something you shouldn't have. But what I'm saying is, most of the time, and even if you ate something, you woke up, just take it as the grace of God. He just wants you to talk to him, amen? Even if it's beside a toilet, but talk to him, you know what I'm saying? I'm just, I'm just, let's keep it real now. Now, so, so, but the thing that that we've got to get is that he's going to be with us. Everything is not, say that to your neighbor, say neighbor, he's going to be with you. God has chosen us. He's chosen us to be his ambassadors, to be his representatives of his kingdom, proclaiming his gospel message of hope to all who will listen. Say, all who will listen. Listen, there are some people that they ain't trying to hear you. Right? And so what do you do? You keep trying to shove the gospel down their throat? No. You keep praying for them. You share the gospel with them. You pray over that seed in their life. I'm going to let you know. You pray. And you know what? You look for those amazing gospel opportunities. My son said amen. He was like, yeah, Dad, I'm going to throw my shoe at you too. Hallelujah. He got excited, right? He's like, yes, Dad, gospel opportunities. So we have to be those kind of people, right? We, we, the, the, the people, but there are other people who want to hear the gospel. So you know what our problem is? We have been so conditioned by the no that we don't anticipate the yes. We have been so conditioned by the rejection of the gospel that we're not excited to share it because, man, they're just going to reject me again. We need, to, we need to understand who it is that we serve. And we need to be faithful to share that gospel. But we have been called to be his representative. So turn with me really quick to 2 Corinthians. And like I said, we're going to go to a lot of scriptures here, so we're going to be quick about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to get you home before 5 o'clock today. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. One of these days, I'm going to preach from like 10 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night. 
I don't know, I don't know how many of y'all are going to be here, but me and Jesus, he's going to be with me. Amen? I'm just saying, he ain't going to hang up and walk out on me. He'll be like, go on, son, preach that gospel. Amen? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 16. It says, therefore, now, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. It says, therefore, if anyone, say if anyone, is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things, say all things have become new. So he gives us some amazing words here. He says, therefore, if anyone, say anyone. That means anyone who comes to Jesus, no matter how bad your sins are, no matter how little your sins are, because some of us think that, you know, we've only done a little bit of sinning. Listen, if you've done one sin, you've offended God in all all aspects. The Bible says if you break one of God's law, you are guilty of all of them. That's what it says. Amen? So, So you told a little white lie, that's enough. You've offended God. Hello? I'm just saying. And so he says this. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, meaning he is a new creature. God does something new in his heart. God does something new in his life. No matter how old or young you are, God wants to create in us a new heart. That's what Jesus meant in John 3, you know, in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus and he tells Nicodemus about being born again. And Nicodemus is like, man, am I supposed to go back into the womb of my mom? And he's like, no. He talks about the spirit blowing. We don't know how the wind blows, but the spirit does this work. And what he saying is that you must be born again. You must be given a new heart, given a new mind, or you know what? You're not going to fully grasp and understand the fullness of the gospel. And so we are called to experience this. He said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. When he says all things become new, he's saying everything in your life, from God's perspective to you, is new. He doesn't see you based on yesterday. He doesn't see you based on an hour ago. He doesn't see you based on five seconds ago. He sees you based on your moment of faith in him that you say, God, I need your salvation. I need your deliverance. He sees you from that moment on. In verse 18, he says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. I love that word reconciled. Through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Look at that. That is so amazing. It is that God was in Christ reconciling. He was bringing things back Because in the Garden of Eden, everything was messed up and we were separated from God. But God brings us back into relationship through the sacrifice of Jesus. He doesn't just bring us back into a relationship with him, but he entrusts us with the word. Say the word of reconciliation. He says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. That means his representatives, as though God were pleading through us. Look at that. God is not, you you wonder why I get so loud and I get so passionate. It's not just because I like to be loud. It's not just because I'm Puerto Rican. Listen to me, okay? 
It's not that. It is because I, I, God is pleading with some of you. Some of you hear the gospel week after week after week, and I fear for you because you don't respond in faith. You act like God is not talking to you, and I tremble for you because there will be a day when you will stand before him, and you will be reminded of every message that you heard, every opportunity you were given, every time the altar was open, every time that someone said, if you want to put faith in Jesus, you will be reminded of those days, and that makes me fear. That's the reason why I became a preacher, so I could be used by God to plead with you. Turn from your sin. Turn to your Savior. Trust Jesus, because eternity is a long time, and the Bible is not false. It is true, and there are two two eternal destinations for all men, either with God or without Him, and my desire, and more than that, God's desire is that you would spend eternity with Him. But God pleads. He pleads. Literally, almost like he's begging. But he's not begging like someone who needs something. He is begging. He is the person who is knocking on your door saying, let me give you life. Let me give you freedom. Let me give you joy. Let me give you peace. Let me give you the eternity that I died for. He is pleading, not because he needs something from you, but because he has something so great to give you. And he says in verse 21, he says, For he made him who knew no sin. He made him who knew no sin. Jesus didn't sin, but he died a sinner's death. He died my death. He died your death. He who knew no sin. See, I know sin. You know sin. Jesus didn't. Jesus never lied. Jesus never disrespected his parents. Jesus never dishonored, you know, the laws of God. Jesus never did anything. He was the perfect lamb of God. He made he, he made him who knew no sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He pleads with you, let me make you righteous. He pleads with you, let me make you whole. I don't want to just make you cute. A lot of you look cute today. Thank you, glory to God. Just saying, you know, I get to look at cute people. But he wants to make you righteous. All of us, church, everyone in this building has been separated from the presence of God due to our sin. Everyone, including myself. Yet God cries out with the gospel through us to all men be reconciled, be brought back into this relationship. Turn back with me to the book of John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verse 6 through 26. We touched on these scriptures last week. I only read one of them to you, but I want to read this whole thing so you can see it in its context. John chapter 17, we're going to start reading in verse 6. When you got it, say so. It says this. It says, I have manifested your name to, to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. They have kept your word. This is Jesus praying, and he's praying for his immediate disciples. 
Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you. They have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I no longer, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you, gave, whom, whom you have given to me, whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. So remember we talked last week about us being one, right? And so he prays this for his disciples that are immediate. And he says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. And so you hear Jesus talking with his dad in heaven. He's talking to his father in heaven. And he's saying, listen, he said, I'm praying for these people that I have called, that have walked with me for these last three years. They have known your words. They have known your truth. And I'm asking you to keep them. But he says this. He says, I am sending them the same way that you sent me. I am sending them into the world. And he goes on. He doesn't stop praying for them, but he prays for us now. And verse 20. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they all may be one as you, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now pause for a moment because this is the first time that you see the reason why God wants us to be one. It's not just for our comfort. That's true. It's not just for our sanctification. That's true. It's not just for our edification. That's also true. It's not just so that way we can have deep relationships and we can grow in the gospel and be on mission together. But, but here's this. He says, so that the world will believe what? That you sent me. God wants us to be one so that way the world will know who the one true God is. You want to know what, the, what, what one of the greatest issues, issues are with people that you and I evangelize to? Is that they have too many options of which church should I go to. Some people were raised Catholic, and then, you know, they, 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 they learned something about that. I don't know about that. Or they were raised Baptist, or they were raised Pentecostal, or they were raised Methodist, or they were raised Lutheran, or they were raised whatever. And when you walk around, I mean, just, if you just walk around Oviedo, you ain't got to walk. I mean, don't do it right now. But if you go look on yellowpages.com, you're going to find like 36 listings of churches in Oviedo. You know how big Oviedo is? It's not very big. Oviedo is a small. There should not be 36 churches in Oviedo. I'm just saying. But the point of the matter is, we are so divided, we are so discombobulated, so you know, what the, you, know, you know what the argument becomes? Well, which one is right? Which one do I go to? Which one has the truth? And we all have the truth. The problem is we don't want to work together so the world can know that we are one, and more importantly, who Jesus is. 
And so this is how the enemy works, and that way he can keep division. In verse 22 it says, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be, in per- that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved them. Now listen. Jesus rebuked people, okay? You go back to the Sermon on the Mount, and he talked about prayer. Y'all remember he said what? He was like, look, don't be like the hypocrites, right? That's what he said. Don't be like the hypocrites with their vain repetitions. This is what Jesus communicates. But you know what Jesus did, just did right now? He just repeated himself. So he must not be saying that you can't repeat yourself in prayer. When something is important, it should be repeated, Right? Like, God, help me to grow in love. Like, God, help me to grow in mercy. God, help me to grow in kindness. You should repeat that over and over again. And when you think you got it, keep thanking him for it. Amen? Amen. But you should continue. And so Jesus repeats this, which tells me something. This is very important for him to repeat it again. He says, Father, I desire that they also that they also whom you gave me may be one with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love which you loved me may be in them and I in them. In John chapter 13, you don't have to turn there. But in John chapter 13, toward the latter part of that chapter, Jesus is speaking to his disciples after he washes their feet. And he tells them this. He says, he says I give you a new command, right? We're supposed to love one another like he loved us. That's what he says. But he says this. He says, and people will know you are my disciples by that. See, church, we pray. God, fill us with your spirit. God, use us with signs and wonders. God, convict hearts. God, and we, and we pray, God, you know, extend, manifest like you did in the book of Acts. Those are all beautiful prayers. But you know what God says? If you want people to know him, you need to be one in him. How much do we pray for unity? How much do we pray to forgive those who offend us? Hello. How much do we forgive those who offend us? How much do we endeavor to walk in unity with one another? Because Jesus makes it clear in his prayer, God, let them be one as we are one, and the world is going to know that you sent me. Amazing. And then he says, and and you will be known as my disciples. In other words, if I am known as someone's disciples, that means that that someone is going to be known. Hello. And so what we should be praying, along with our prayers for power, our prayers for signs and wonders, our prayer that God would move, we should be praying even more passionately. The same way that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he says this, he says that we should desire the gifts, but pursue love. See, we got it backwards, church. We pursue the gifts. And Lord, if I can love, it's okay, but let me have your power. We got it backwards. Repeat this after me. Our lives should bear the marks of those who have been sent. And I want you to notice even the disciples who physically walk with Jesus were marked by fear and doubt. Now, this is what I want you to get. When you look at the beginning of this chapter, it says that they were in a room. They were locked in there. 
They were fearful for their lives. They were fearful specifically of the Jews. And mind you, John is one of these disciples. And so, you know, that would be a time that he could maybe exclude what they were afraid of. He could have said, you know, that they were locked in the room praying. They, they could have said something else. But he says the truth. He's like, we were fearful for our lives. We were fearful of the Jews. And the reason why I want you to notice that is because for some reason we start to think that because we have issues that we're disqualified from God's purposes in our lives. Listen, the gospel makes us qualified. It's not our perfection. Hello. And I'm going to say something in a moment that's going to sound like I'm contradicting myself, and I'm not. What I'm saying is, is that too many people think, well, I got to get myself right, then I'll come to church. Here's the point. I got to clean some things up then. No, no, wait a second. Let God clean you up. Come to Jesus and let him clean you up. But come to him for real. See, for me, most people, when they're saying I got to clean some stuff up is, they're saying, I really like my stuff. I really enjoy what I'm doing, and I'm not ready to get rid of it. So I don't want to hear you anymore, so I'm going to tell you, I got to get some things right, then I'm coming. Right? I'm just saying. Right? <laughs> Glory to God. But Jesus did not disqualify them. He didn't go and say, you know what, you guys are fearful, you guys are horrible. So you know what, I'm going to go find some other disciples. That's not what he did. But what he does is despite their weaknesses, despite what they were going through, and mind you, he does what? He, he breathes on them. Say he breathed on them. Brings us back to the book of Genesis, chapter, you know, chapter 2, when it talks about God formed man, and then he breathed life into him, right? And so his disciples that he's been molding for the last three years, he breathes on them that breath of life again because he's saying this. He goes, they go from being fearful to rejoicing to then being filled with the Spirit as they're commissioned by God. So God doesn't leave them in their sin and say, hey, just come on, keep sinning. No, he never says that. But he gives you the power and the ability to sin no more. He gives you the power and the ability to walk with him and the righteousness that he affords us. And so his disciples don't get traded in. They get filled with the Spirit, and that way they can go, even in their imperfection, and they're still going to have doubts in their heart and things are going to happen. But our lives, a life marked as one who is sent, is not a perfect life, but it is a life that is marked by passion, by precision, and by persistence in and for the gospel. Let me say that again. A life marked as one who is sent is not perfect, but it is a life that is marked with passion, precision, and persistence in and for the gospel. God has never, ever looked for someone perfect, he has looked for someone to perfect. He has never looked for someone who's perfect. He's looked for someone who is willing to be perfected by his grace. But we're going to look through the book of John, and we're going to look at about eight scriptures, and I want you to see what a life looks like that is marked by this gospel, a life that is marked as being one who is sent by God. So start with me in the book of John, that, that same gospel where you're at. Turn to John chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 8. John chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, and it says this. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. I love that. I, I just, when, when I read that, I was like, God, I just want to be known like that. There was a man who was sent by John. His name was Jason. I mean, sent by God. His name was Jason. I got confused. But listen, I don't want to be sent by John. I want to be sent by Jesus. But here's the thing. I, that, 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 to me, that is such an impressive statement. Because it's in the Bible, which makes it really true, right? Like, people could be like, oh, you know, you're a man of God, and you know that you're not. I'm just saying. I'm, I'm talking about myself. I ain't talking about you. Hello? 
you know that you're not living right like you should be, and people are like talking about how amazing you are, right? You're like, man, I am a heathen, right? But when the Bible says, like, God is testifying, right? God is, God is saying there was a man that was sent by God. His name was John. And so first of all, we need to have a witness from God. But it goes on to say this. It says, this man came as a witness. Say a witness. To bear witness to the light that all through him might believe. And so it was through the witness of John that people were going to believe in who? Jesus. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And so my life, if I'm marked as one who was sent, then what does that mean? That means that I got a witness from God. That means that I am there doing what? I am bearing witness to who? To Jesus. Not me. Not my greatness, but who Jesus is. So that's a life. That's the first thing that we see. John was not perfect. Hello. Right? But he was a person whose life was marked by some things. Turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 and verse 34 to 38. And since I know we're there, I'm just going to start reading when I get there. So John chapter 4, verse 34 to 38. It says, Jesus said to them. Now let me give you some context here. They, Jesus was, was, was just finished having this conversation with this woman at the well. He ministered to her. Amazing time that Jesus had. The disciples come back from getting food, and they're like, Jesus, you need to eat. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not hungry. And this is what he says to them. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months, then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for the harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And so the first thing that we find there is in the top of that verse, the whole verse tells us what Jesus' food is. But when we look at food, okay, food is something that satisfies us. Food is something that we pursue. When we are hungry, we're going to find someplace and we're driving down the road and, you know, we, we're not anywhere near our home, nowhere near a meal. Guess what we're doing? We're stopping at a drive-thru because we are hungry. We have something that, is, that, is, that we need to get satisfied by. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples here who came back with this food and they're like, Jesus, eat. Jesus is saying, my food is not the food of this world. He's not saying that I don't eat. Jesus ate plenty. This is early on in the gospel. So trust me, he had plenty of meals with them. But what he was saying is that his life was so consumed with the harvest. His life was so consumed with the souls that needed the gospel that he was willing to miss a meal or two in order to be consumed, in order to do and finish the work that God had given him to finish. So listen, when, when we look at these, these, these things together, I don't want you to just be like, okay, those are good marks. What I want you to ask yourself is, does my life have these markings? Are you so consumed by the satisfactions of this world that you're not consumed by fulfilling the will of God? Are you so worried about filling? I mean, Paul says this, and I don't want to take it out of context in the, in the book of Philippians, but when he says their God is their belly, this is what he's saying. He's not talking about them, you know, like their belly, like, their, like food is their God. He's saying their appetites, their desires, their wants, those things are their God. So what is your food? Is your food just to fulfill your natural yearnings? Or is your food to fulfill the supernatural will of God for your life? 
If our lives are not marked by that, then we need to question and check ourselves to find where we are. Look over to the next chapter, chapter 5 and verse 30. He says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Now look what he says. He says, I can do nothing of myself. He's saying, everything that I do is not because of my own will. It's not because of my own desires. I'm not trying to fulfill my will. I'm trying to fulfill the will of the one who sent me. Question for you, question for me, is that my life? Is my life overwhelmed with fulfilling the will of God or fulfilling my will? Can we say that with Jesus, that you know what? I can do nothing of myself. Oh, well, Jesus, you know, he's, he's God. You're right. And you know, what, you know what the Bible says? That we're supposed to imitate him. Do you know what my goal should be? To be like that. Well, I can do nothing of myself. See, y'all, 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 y'all thought it was funny when, you know, when I tell you about when I first became a Christian, right? And I was like telling God, God, can I go get a haircut? Right? You thought, I, I, I thought I was crazy. I was like a fanatic. But you know what it was? I told you when I shared that testimony. I wasn't trying to show that I was so spiritual. What I was trying to tell you is, you know what my mindset and my heart was? I didn't want to miss anything from God. And what I knew is that I could desire to go do something that I needed to get done at some point, but did I have to do it right then? That was the point. It's like, it like I didn't want to miss time with, with, with the Spirit of God. I didn't want to miss time. I didn't want to miss God because I was doing my own thing. And so I'm not telling you you have to pray about your haircuts. Hello. It's not what I'm saying. Just be like me. Just shave it, glory to God. You got to pray about it. Just, it's done, right? You just, whatever, God, I'm good. <laughs> have a bunch of bald people in here next week. Be like, Bishop, we took you literally. I was joking, Okay. The thing is, you should pray about that to God. Should I shave my head? He'll say, no, no, not you. I didn't give you a head for that. Amen. <clears throat> Glory to God. Turn to John chapter 7, verse 14 to 18. It says this. It says, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? In other words, he never went to Bible college, right? He didn't go to their Bible college. He didn't sit under them as their teacher, as, 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 as their student. They, they, they knew this. They knew where he came from. You know, his, his earthly father, Joseph, was a carpenter. Jesus worked with his hands. And so where did he get these teachings? And Jesus comes back and he says, Jesus answered and said to them, my doctrine or my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. So Jesus said, my teaching, what I teach, what I believe, doesn't come from me. It comes from God Almighty. Listen. There's, there, there, there's, there is the truth of Scripture that is right here. And so here's the question for you, the question for me. Does my life line up with what Jesus teaches? Does my life line up with what the Word of God declares? Or am I making up the rules as I go? You know, kind of like little kids when they play a game, you know? They're playing a game, right, and, 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 and something happens like, oh, well, we can't do that. Why not? I thought, well, we just make it up as we go. See, for us as Christians, that's how we act with God sometimes. Like, you know what? I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, but I'm not going to do that. 
I think we should do something different here. People always think they should do something different here. Listen, if it's in the book, that's it. It's in the book. You can't take it out. You can't, you know, fix it the way you want it to be. It's in the book. And so I'm not asking you to go and pull out teaching from God. The teaching's already been pulled out from God. Hello. It is right here for us. And so the question is, do I live my life by that standard or some other standard? Look at chapter 8 and verse 29. It says this. It says, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. So again, is that your life? Is that is your life marked by that, that you really live? That is the vision of Faith Doma Fellowship, is that we live to please God. And so the question is, are you living to please him for real? We just live to please him once in a while. Are you living to please? When it is hard to obey him, are you still obeying him? When it is uncomfortable to do what he says to do, are you still doing what he says to do? Are you speaking when he says speak? Are you being quiet when he says be quiet? Are you praying when he says pray? Are you in his word when he says be in his word? Are you sharing the gospel when he says to? Are you serving where you need to serve? Are you, are you really living your life to please him? That's a life that's marked by this, by this being sent by God. Look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. It says, now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And the disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be, should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Look what he says. He says, I have to work the works. Is that your life? Is that my life that I'm consumed with the work that God has done? No, but Bishop, you know, I have a family. And Bishop, I have a job. And Bishop, you know, it's easy for you to say, no, 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 no. We're supposed to imitate Jesus in everything. We're supposed to imitate him on all fronts. And so the question here is, am I like that? Is my life marked by that, that I am consumed by the work that God has entrusted me with? And and when I say work, I'm just simply talking about us being disciples. Remember what I said in the beginning. Being a disciple is about what? It's about making disciples. It's about a relationship with Jesus, and it's about living that out. If you look at John chapter 12, look there with me. John chapter 12, verse 49 and verse 50. He says, for I have not spoken of my own authority. Again, He's not speaking on his own authority. But the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say and what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Does that mark your life? James says, man, it is hard to tame the tongue. It's not not an easy thing. It's something that is difficult. Our emotions get the best of us. We get upset. And, and, and are, you, are you mindful that even in your being upset that you are not saying things that you shouldn't be saying? You know, right away we think about vulgarity, you know, and curse words. Yeah, that's one thing. But you can never say a curse word and still say things you shouldn't say. You can never curse someone out and you just speak to them in a manner. You say things that are cutting and that are demeaning and that are, and that are sent to kill them, not build them up. Then you're not being like Jesus. 
So the Father has given me what to speak. Listen, God wants you and I to have that type of relationship, that type of submission. And I know for some of you are like, man, that's way above where I'm at. And that's okay. He's calling you higher. John chapter 13, verse 15 to 17. says, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so again, this is the scripture that talks about Jesus serving. His life was marked. He was sent by God, and he came not to be served, but to serve. So is is your life marked by that? Do you have that heart and that willingness to serve others? Serve others with your gifts, your abilities, your talents. Listen, those things are things that should mark our lives. And the last one that we'll look at as far as what should mark our life is John chapter 14, verse 23 to 24. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So do you love him? Is your life marked by biblical love of God? Not our thought of love for God. But a love for God that obeys, that keeps the word of God. That's what we're called to do. Now, let me say that this was a statement that I said you would think I was contradicting myself. And it is that while perfection is impossible, perfection is to be our aim. Why is this? Because that will always keep us humble. You see, when I have a standard that is lower than perfection, I will think I've arrived at some point. And at the point that I think I've arrived, I'm good to go. Other people got to catch up to me. But when I am living a life that is striving after perfection the way that Jesus is the example of perfection, when I am striving to live a life that rises to the standard of that perfection because God says what? Jesus said it clearly that we are to be perfect as his Father is perfect. That's what Jesus said, not what I'm saying. And what he's saying is, as I strive for that perfection, I will always remain humble because I will always know I've not arrived yet. And no matter how far I come, I can rejoice because of what? Because he's been working in me. But I still got a long way to go. So when I see someone else who's not at my level, hello. When I see someone who hasn't made the type of strides that I've made, guess what I do? I remain humble. Why? Because I'm not measuring my life based on them. I'm measuring my life based on him. And see, here's what I know. I love, I, I, I love the thought that, you know, I don't remember where I heard this quote, but those who feel that they are the closest to God are usually the furthest from him. And those who are the closest to him are the ones that feel the furthest from him. Because when you are really close with him, you are experiencing his holiness. And you realize, my God, I am so far from being that holy. 
I am so far from being that pure. I am so far from being that righteous. I am so far from that standard. And what happens is I should strive with all that is within me to do what? To pursue being perfect, knowing that I will never arrive there, but I will walk in the humility that I should. But then I also rejoice in what? The work of perfection. The third thing. Repeat this after me. This will get into our, our point. I mean, I've made some points, but this is the last one. Amen? Don't say amen. I love, love it. No one said amen. They're like, Bishop, preach till 10 o'clock. I will. All right. So say this with me. Need-oriented evangelism must be born out of an understanding of man's deepest needs. Need-oriented evangelism must be born out of an understanding of man's deepest needs needs. Now here's what I want you to understand. I said that we were that, that we were lower in loving relationships and in need-oriented evangelism. And so the whole point is is that our lives should be marked because God and, and this is what we should understand by now is that we have been sent on mission with Jesus. That's, that, that's what we should know. We should be clear on that, that we have been sent on mission with him, that we have been sent to walk with him, that we have been sent to do what he's called us to do. But we need to come to the point where we look at the needs of people around us. And so to grow in our evangelism, we must have the correct motivation. And here's the thing. If I ask you this question right now, how many of you have sh- Now, don't raise your hand. I don't, I'm not asking this question. I'm saying if I ask this question, okay? I want you to answer it to yourself, right? So if I asked you the question and I said, so how many of you in this place have shared the gospel recently? Right? And there's probably like two two responses that are going on right now, right? There's the one of self-righteousness, like, yes, that's me. Bishop, can I get a mic so I can share with the church how I share the gospel? Can I testify? Amen. Glory to God. All right? And that's great. That's wonderful. That that, that might fall in the side of self-righteousness. But anyway, that's, that's another thing, right? In some cases, amen? Some people are just excited. But here's the thing. There's the person that is just really like, you know, yeah, you know, I share the gospel all the time. Okay, you're good. Maybe. But then there's the person over here that you know what they thought when I said that? They used Minister Juan's favorite phrase, I suck. I suck. You're like, man, I need to share the gospel more. Man, I need, you know, I had so many opportunities. And then you go from being self-righteous to being self-condemning. And can I tell you something? Neither one of those are gospel motivations. God doesn't want you to look at evangelism as a burden that you have to do because, you know, this is what, no. And he doesn't want you to look at evangelism as it's a checklist, it's something that I just do. it. No, no. He wants you to have a deeper motivation. And the motivation is what? It's him. The motivation is the gospel. The motivation, like I said, you know, the the motivation is not that, man, I I just feel condemned and i got to get out there and do this. That's the wrong motivation. Remember what I said in the beginning. The motivation must be the love of God. Because if it's anything else, it will be short-lived. You see, because if I'm over here on the self-righteous side, right, and I'm like, yep, I got my tracks and I do this and I do, and, and, I, and, and all these things that you do, well, then what happens is you start to have your little checklist and you'll stop evangelizing or you just keep doing it. But the motivation is not because of the gospel. 
It's not because Jesus is changing your life. See, I have conversation with people. You know, Milton, he, sh- he sends me emails and stuff like that. And he's like, yo, check this out. You know, I'm having conversation, you know, with this person. And he's not trying to boast. He's not trying, oh, man, you know, I'm the man. He's not, he's like, he's, he's seeking God. God is doing something in his heart. His motivation is that everyone, I only know this because him and I have conversations about this. His motivation is not that he wants to be the guy that has brought more people than anyone to Jesus for the sake of that. He wants to take as many people from the pit of hell and from the strongholds of the enemy as possible because he has tasted the goodness of the Lord and he understands the realities of eternity. That's the motivation that should be there in our hearts. We shouldn't be motivated because I I feel condemned. And then what happens is you're going to feel more condemned because no matter how motivated you get, you're still going to lack the motivation to open your mouth. You're still going to lack the motivation to open your mouth. And so there's something greater. The more, and listen to me, the more that we understand the gospel, the more we stand in awe of our Savior, and then the more we desire to share his hope. The more that we understand the gospel, listen, do not tell me, church, please hear me. Do not tell me that you want to be more like Jesus, but you don't spend time in your Bible. You are lying to yourself. You are deceiving yourself. Oh, I want to be more like Jesus. What does your prayer life look like? Listen, and I don't want to be condemning, but I want you to really check your heart. Because we learn to say all this Christianese, hello. We learn to say, we learn like in church, like the right answer to everything is Jesus, right? Like, who did this? Jesus. You know, so... We learn, right? That's the right answer. We learn all the right answers for church. Oh, yeah, I need to be more like Jesus. Oh, yeah, I need to repent. Stop saying what you need to do. Are you really walking it out? Listen, this question becomes so important because the Bible says, many will come unto me in that day. And we'll say, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we do great works of service in your name? And he's going to say, part from me. I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. Listen, people wouldn't have a list of things they did for Jesus if they weren't deceived thinking they were following him. I don't want you to be deceived, church. I don't want you to think that you're okay. Listen, if you want to be more like him, if you want to be motivated by the things that should motivate you, then you have to be in the place where you're going to be motivated. And like we were talking about in men's meeting, I'm not trying to tell you, don't listen to me. If you don't have a prayer life and you don't read your Bible right now, repent of your sin. But here's what I'm going to tell you. Don't make a commitment to read, to read the Bible for an hour a day and pray for an hour a day because you are going to sin again. What I am telling you is commit to starting somewhere, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, but start somewhere faithfully with God. Lord, I want to be like you, and this is what I can commit to because I know I'll make it. And anybody who has done that knows that that 15 minutes, that 5 minutes, it becomes so short. It's not enough time because then when you get to that hour, you still got your prayer list, and you're like, man, I still got like 50 things to pray for. And you've been sitting there for an hour, and it just happens. But look, it doesn't just happen overnight. It's something where you start with a commitment. But don't lie to yourself and be like, oh, I want to be more like you, Jesus, but I don't talk to you. Except when I'm about to have a problem. Except when the blue light, you know, I get the blue light special, and they're about to pull me up. I'm like, Lord, please have mercy. Right? That's, that's when you talk to Jesus, right? Like, that's the only time you talk to him. <laughs> just saying, you don't want to be like Jesus. You just want his blessing. You don't want him. Yes, son, I'm finishing, all right? Glory to God. 
She was like, Dad, I want you to hug me. Okay, glory to God. (laughs) The more you understand the gospel, the more you will stand in awe of the Savior, and the more you will want to share the hope. Not because I tell you how to do it. Let me give you the practical things that are right in your Bible. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We have two more scriptures and we'll be done for today. First Corinthians chapter 9. Go to verse 15. When you got to say amen. It says, but I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. Now let me pause for a moment here. Because what the Apostle Paul has been talking about, he's been talking about the rights that the preachers of the gospel have to getting paid. That's what he's talking about. He's speaking about this. And what he's saying is, I'm not, I'm not telling you this stuff so that way you start paying me. That's what he's meaning. He's like, I don't want to get paid to do what I do. He's like, I'm compelled to preach the gospel. That's just to give you some context so you understand what he's talking about. But he's saying, I'm compelled to preach the gospel. I do this. I don't want anybody to make my boasting void. And not that he's boasting, but that he is communicating the gospel. And there is a real motivation for him to do that. He says in verse 16, he says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid on me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Why would he say that? Do you hear that, the intensity of his words there? He's like, if I don't preach the gospel, he's like, there's something that is gripping my heart. He's saying, woe is, when, listen, when you hear, when you see woe in the Bible, that is a big thing. That is like, cursed is me. Okay? He is saying, he's saying, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Something is going on inside of the Apostle Paul. And what is it? Is it because he was such an amazing Pharisee that that translated into his Christianity? No. His world was rocked on the road of Damascus. And he met with Jesus every day and was seeking him. And he was being changed by the gospel. And so woe is he if he didn't share the gospel. Woe is he if he didn't open his mouth and share the riches and the goodness of who his God is. There was something that was going on inside of him and it wasn't because he learned how to do it somewhere it was because he had a relationship and an encounter with God that was changing his heart verse 17 says he says for if I do this willingly I have a reward but if against my will I have been entrusted with a stewardship so even if I want to do it then you know what I'm rewarded if I don't want to do it I still got to do it because I've been given this stewardship he said what is my reward That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. His reward is that he's able to share this. But now we get into this part here. Verse 19, it says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. This is needs-oriented evangelism 101, church. This is how we meet the needs of people in evangelism. This is what he said. He says, And to the Jew... I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as though as without the law. Not being without law toward toward God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake. 
that I may be a partaker of it with you. Now, we're going to pause, and I want to read the rest of this for a moment. But what he's saying here is, he's saying, look, he said, I become all things to all. I, I, I know the needs that are there. Some people are Jewish. They need to have a word, an example. So I become that to them. And other people, they're not. They don't know the law. So him going through the Bible with them, that's not going to help them. So he has to meet them where they are. For what reason? So he can have more friends? No. For what reason? So he can have a big church? No. For what reason? He says the reason. It is for the sake of the gospel. It is for the sake of the gospel. And he said, I, I, love, the, I love the scripture. I, I love the way he communicates this. He says in verse 23, he says that I may be a partaker of it with you. Listen to me, church. If we are not sharing the gospel, we are not fully partaking of the gospel. If we are not sharing the gospel, according to the scripture, because if, if anyone should have been a partaker of the gospel, it was Paul, right? But he says, because I want to partake of it with you. We don't fully partake of it by ourselves. Now look at verse 24 because I want to put some context in this. Because when we become all things to all men, some of us think that we got to become sinners like them. Look what Paul says. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. In other words, you know, we have this mindset like being Christians, we shouldn't have any kind of ambition, any kind of, any kind of drive. That's not true. We should be having a drive for the gospel. We should be having a drive for the glory of Jesus, right? He says, and everyone who competes in verse 25 for the prize is, is, is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, now look at this, I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but verse 27, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest... When I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. What he's saying is, run hard. Become all things to all men, but don't become all men. Find out where people are. Go to where they are. Minister to them, but don't begin drunk with them. Hello. Don't, don't, don't go sitting down next to someone. Yo, go ahead and pass. No, don't, don't take the pass. Hello. For those of you that know what the pass is, don't worry about it. But for those of you who do, don't do it. All right? Not talking about football here. But here's the thing, okay? Don't become all that. Be with those people. Jesus ate with sinners. He didn't sin, though. Paul did the same thing. He ate with those who were not Jewish, who were sinful, who were Gentile, but he did not sin. And he beat his body into subjection. In other words, he continued to crucify his flesh. So that way, when he was among the Jewish people, he was able to be alive. When he was among the Gentiles, he was able to be alive. So here's the thing. How is it that we learn the needs of people? Well, there's two ways that we learn the needs of people. It's the spiritual way and the practical way. The spiritual way is, while you're in prayer, the Holy Spirit shows you the need that someone has. Glory to God for that. But can I tell you something? More times than not, you're going to learn the needs of people practically. How does that happen? You get to know them. I love the analogy. Salt does nothing in a shaker. It's salt. But until it touches the meat, it doesn't do anything for it. And so how do we get to know the needs? Well, we have relationship with them. Last scripture that I want you to turn to is the book of Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to 38. 
So we're going to be practical, and we're going, to, we're going to reach the needs and minister to people's needs, and we have to do this according to the Scriptures. We have to do this the way that Jesus shows us and the Apostle Paul shows us. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to 38. So we see the Apostle Paul. Remember what, that, what this point was. Need-oriented evangelism must be born out of an understanding of man's deepest need. See, I'm going to learn the practical needs of people. I'm going to learn that someone's going through something in their marriage. I'm going to learn that someone's having issues with their children. I'm going to learn that someone's having issues with their finances. I'm going to learn that someone is having, you know, homeless issues. I'm going to learn all of those needs. And then what can happen to us is that we get so caught up in trying to meet those needs, we forget about the greatest need. See what I'm saying? And so what Paul does, he finds out where the needs are, and he's going to go there, and he's going to meet practical needs, and he's going to, and he's going to speak into people's life. But look what Jesus says in, verse, in, in chapter 9 and verse 35 to 38. It says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. You saw that. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Our deepest concern and motivation for those who do not know Jesus must be their eternal destination. What Jesus was saying, he's saying when he, looked at the, when he looked at the crowds, he saw they had no shepherd. You know what that meant? That meant that they had no leadership. They had no protection. They had no one leading them in the faith. They were doing their own thing. And so it wasn't just about them having someone to lead them in this earth. It was about them having someone to lead them into eternity. The Bible says that he was moved with compassion. I want you to understand that word, move with compassion. That word, move with compassion, it literally means his bowels were twisted. It means his stomach was turned upside down. What happened was when Jesus saw people who were on their way to an eternal destination of separation from God, when he saw that, you know what, he, you know what happened? Something inside of him twisted. Something inside of him was moved. My question to you is this. When you see those who are not walking with Jesus, is something inside of you moved? If not, God wants it to move. God wants our hearts to be twisted over that. And so my closing question is this. Are you missionally motivated? Are you missionally motivated? Are you motivated by the mission that God has and he's called you on with him? Are you motivated by that? If you don't know Jesus, the answer is no. If you know Jesus, I don't know what your answer is. But if your life has none of these marks that we talked about, and if your life is not moved when you see somebody who is hurting because of their separation from God, if you are not moved with compassion, I call you to repentance today. Stand to your feet and bow your heads with me, please. I just want to pray for you this morning. Pray for us that the Holy Spirit would convict our hearts. So I'm going to ask you to grab your neighbor's hand. If you do not know Jesus in this place, this is the opportunity for you to put your faith in him. This is your opportunity to put your faith and your trust in him and to ask him to become the Lord of your life.
If you don't know him, this is the opportunity. And that person next to you, I'm just going to encourage you, if you make that decision today, let that person know. And if someone tells you that they made a decision for Jesus, take them to one of the pastors so that way we can help them get on track and walking as a disciple of Jesus. Amen? I'm going to pray now. Father, we just come to you right now in your holy and righteous name. And God, we thank you so very much for the greatness of your love. We thank you so very much for the magnitude of your mercy. God, we come to you today as your sons and daughters, Father God, and we also, Lord, pray for those in here that are not your sons and daughters, my God. Father, I pray for those who do not know you, God, that you would convict their hearts. God, that you would draw them unto you. God, that you would liberate them from whatever it is that is keeping them from bowing their hearts and their lives to you, my God. Father God, and I pray for us that are your sons and daughters, my God, that there are areas in our lives that are not marked, Lord God, that we have been sent, dear Lord. Father God, so many of us in this place, Lord God, if we're honest, we do not walk in submission to you, God. We don't walk in submission to your will. We don't think about what we say. We don't think about what we do. Lord God, we don't seek you in prayer. We don't seek you in your word. Father God, our lives are hypocritical, my God, because we say we're yours, but Lord God, our lives say something different. And so God, I pray for repentant hearts, my God. Father, for us, dear Lord, and I pray for us, Lord God, that are walking with you, my God, that are striving for perfection, dear Lord. Father God, may I...